The New Testament reading comes from the book of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that, though perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance to the sufferings destined for Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading is from the book of Luke chapter 12. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. <clears throat> they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, how they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Our God, we need you. We give you thanks for your word and spirit, and we now ask for your blessing and your help. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and even pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. 
And we pray to you, O Father, through the name of Christ. Amen. And so we are still in our epiphany season. And as we've said over the last couple of weeks, in Epiphany, we emphasize themes like the light of God, right? God illumines our path and guides us. We talk about the revelation of God, about how God, we get to know God because God chooses to make himself known to us. And so this revelation of God, this light of God, this idea of seeing what God would have us to see becomes central in our observation of this uh, season of Epiphany. And so this sermon series that we're doing is called Seeing through eyes of faith. And we're taking opportunities to look on different aspects of our life through fresh lenses, the lenses God gives us in faith. And so we started off, Cindy got us going, of seeing God through eyes of faith. And we saw in that opening time, that opening sermon, this idea of when we see God through eyes of faith, we don't just start with ourselves and whatever we project onto God. Right? We don't start with our experiences and try to reason our way up to what God must be like. If we're going to see God through eyes of faith, the only place we can start is with Jesus himself because this is how God has chosen to make us acquainted with who God is. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what we discover in Jesus is rather surprising that we discover God is like Jesus rather than like what we would imagine or expect if we started in any other place. And then last week, we started thinking about, okay, well, what do, how do we see ourselves through eyes of faith? You know, when we don't look through eyes of faith, we start from places like expectations, what I thought my life would be like at this point, or what I feel like you think my life should be like, uh, the comparison game, or that inner critical voice, or these different ways in which we look upon ourselves from some other vantage point whether it's worldly success, whether it's what people say about us, right? Our accomplishments, whatever. And we evaluate ourselves, we evaluate one another, and the way that we begin to see ourselves from those different places will shape the way we relate to one another. But when we look through eyes of faith, we see something else. We see that we are creatures who belong to a creator. We are endowed with dignity, even a magnificent beauty that we didn't make ourselves. We're not self-made individuals. We see ourselves as beloved children to the Father. We see ourselves as reconciled sinners for whom Jesus died and rose again to make peace between us and God and peace between us and one another. And we see ourselves as new creations, those who've been made alive together with Christ and the Spirit, who have been part, who've been brought into being part of this new thing that God is doing. So this is where we've come so far, and today, in this third installment of our series, we think about well, what does it look like to see the future through eyes of faith? Think about it with me. Think about the future. Go ahead. What are you thinking about? When I prompted you to think about the future, what are the things that come to mind? You know, if you'd asked me, when I was like eight, think about the future. What do you think about? I'd be like flying cars and maybe I get to drive one, right? It's like when, you, when you're young, when you're really young, um, perhaps when you think about the future, the things you think about are things that you don't get to do yet that older people get to do that one day you'll be allowed to do, like drive, right? 
or go on your own road trip, or you get to pick where you go on vacation instead of always tagging along with your parents, whatever it is. But as you get older, the way that you think about the future changes. As you become responsible for more things, the way that you think about the future changes. As you become connected and attached to more people, the way you think about the future changes. And so for most of us, if we we're gonna pull the audience and just say, all right, what do you think about? Odds are many of us would have, would have, our minds would have gone to things like our investments, our savings, like will we have enough in the end? Will we have enough when we're old? Will we have enough like when our kids need us to help them out at more expensive stages of life? Or maybe you think about relationships that you have or that you don't have but would love to have. Will those ever happen? Will I, by the time I die, will I have ever experienced this or that? We think about our health. Do I currently have a tumor growing in me that I don't know about? I wonder. Maybe you wonder. We worry, we wonder, we're concerned about things. Or, or, or you think a little bit more broadly, you think about trends that are concerning to you about like what is the world gonna be like in 10 years? What is the world gonna be like in 50 years? What's the world that my kids are gonna live in? What's that place going to be like? What are people going to be committed to? Or like how high are the oceans going to be, right? I checked in, um, with the doomsday clock, you can't talk about the future with a microphone in your face and not like check in on some of these other things with people who think about this stuff, and right? And yeah, so it's, if, you're, if you're familiar or not familiar with the doomsday clock, it was created around the, the time of the, the advent of the atomic age, right? Sort of um, kind of in the, in the middle of World War II era. And it's essentially a group of people who assess kind of where are we in light of humanity's ability to annihilate ourselves and destroy everything, right? And so it's, it's assessing nuclear risk and climate change and disruptive technologies and things like that. And, you know, currently we're at 90 seconds to midnight, which is the worst yet, apparently. Um, and so, you know, as you think about the future or whatever, there are all kinds of ways that we might begin to think about what is to come. And probably for most of us, what we do when we do that is we begin to think about possible futures through a grid of opportunities and threats, right? Maybe there's some pure curiosity in there. Like, will we ever do flying cars? I don't know, that'd be interesting, right? But for most of us, as we're thinking about the future, and put most of us, that we relate to the future in terms of what possibly may happen as it pertains to our opportunities and our threats, right? And so we want to be ahead of the curve and take advantage of opportunities because that would make a better future. What's the next Amazon? If I knew, that'd be helpful, right? Threats. What are the things that are going to undermine all of it? And kind of beneath all of this, as we're thinking about these possible futures through the grid of opportunity and threat, we're reckoning with the reality of we do live vulnerably in a scary world. We do live in a world where bad things do happen. 
We also live in a world where surprisingly good things also happen. And we hope some of those will change our situation and we hope the bad things won't. And so we go and we think about the future either because we want to try to advance ourselves or we want to try to protect ourselves, whatever it is. But all of that's coming through an imagination that's, that's really zoned in on the next season or maybe two or three, your future, your children's future, your grandchildren's future, whatever. And how do we shore that up as best we can? But this is where the invitation to see the future through eyes of faith comes to meet us, I believe. Because when we're invited to view the future through eyes of faith, and we'll consider this text from Peter, we'll consider these words of Jesus as well from the Gospel of Luke. When we consider the future according to what Jesus and the apostles teach us to think about, and we receive that invitation and then begin to act on it, I think what we see is that we're invited not simply to perseverate on the possible futures through this grid of opportunity and risk, but to actually let our imagination about the future be driven by a promised future that God has secured for us in Jesus through his death and resurrection and has connected us to by the presence of his spirit even now. And so that's what I want us to think about. Would you look with me on page 8 of your bulletin, this text from 1 Peter chapter 1. I love this text. I've come to it many times. We won't do the exhaustive kind of deep dive reading today as we've done in other times, but I just want, us to, I want to draw our attention to this first paragraph here. By his great mercy, God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be, to be revealed at the last time. This is an incredibly beautiful and hopeful statement by Peter, and I think it, it pushes on us to think about the future differently in a couple of ways. The first, I think, is that when we begin to let the biblical story, the story God is telling about the world and, and, and letting us in on, when we let that story shape our sense of the story of the world, what we begin to see at the, from the earliest pages of the Bible all the way through to the end is a vision that tracks with this Hebrew concept, shalom, right? It's a word that if you've hung around this community for any length of time, you hear it come up over and over and over because it's very important. Shalom is often translated peace. It's a, it's a vision of wholeness. It's a vision of everything being rightly related to God and everything else. It's a vision of a world in which life thrives, right? Where justice prevails, where peace is the norm and love is the dynamic that animates all that happens. It's a world of beauty. It's a world of richness and it's a world where life lasts forever. And the threats like sickness and loss and sorrow and violence, these things aren't threats in a world of shalom. They're gone because God has done the work of establishing the reign of Christ and making all things new. 
And so this world of shalom is presented as God's design and desire for creation. And it's presented as this thing that gets fractured, or as one commentator calls, vandalized. That's from Neil Plantinga. He's, he has a whole chapter on the vandalism of shalom and the way that human beings live against God, away from God, and, one another, and against one another. It's this act of vandalizing the goodness of God's world. That's what we do with our violent words and our violent actions. We fracture the beauty that God intends. But God doesn't leave the repair of that vandalized and fractured shalom up to us. He also doesn't do it apart from us. The story of the, of the scriptures is over and over again, God picking out a new person picking out a new humanity, selecting somebody to get involved with him in the great work of renewing and reconciling all these things. And ultimately, we see that story unfold toward Jesus. He's the one that God chooses. This is my beloved son. He anoints him to do the work. Jesus leads the way and dies and rises and sends the spirit and then empowers his people to be part of the great Shalom project. But what's important about that promised future there are many things that are important. But it doesn't start from the vantage point you and I start with when we imagine the future. Think about it. When you were thinking about the future, you're looking through your own eyes. Who's at the middle of that future? Probably you or your kids or your grandkids. Some, some central point of reference, right, from which you then think about all things. It's the only perspective we get when we're looking through our own eyes. But the invitation to see the future through eyes of faith is actually to begin to see a vision of the future that doesn't start with you. It actually starts with Jesus. He's at the center of this future. He is the Lord of all things. Everything is brought under his rule and everything thrives because of it. He doesn't exploit the world for his own gain. He blesses the world for its flourishing. And so as we imagine this future, as we're drawn into thinking about this promised future that will actually happen, we're supposed to see it as one where Jesus is at the center of it, yet he's prepared a place for us in it. And that place in that future for you is better than your station in this world now by far, no matter what your station is. And so if you live in the world today as a person of relative privilege, where the deck is stacked toward your advantage, still better for you to live in a world completely reordered by Jesus, where he makes the place for you to fit, and it's not by you winning that you get there. If you're a person who's more at the margins, a person of less privilege, a person who lives from a place of disadvantage or lack, the justice of Jesus that comes through his life-giving reign is profoundly good news for you. Because in this world that God is making, everyone has enough. Everyone is dignified. Everyone is included. Cops won't pull you over and kill you for no good reason in the world that Jesus is bringing to bear upon the earth. It's good news no matter who you are, no matter where you are. And for any of us, the invitation to begin dreaming about that future begins with dreaming about a future in which Jesus is at the center of it. And we become included through him. 
But another thing for us to realize is that this is an earthy vision. The vision of shalom is not like pie in the sky, clouds and harps and like cherub looking angels. By cherub, I don't mean what Cindy told us about what cherubs were like in the Bible. I'm thinking the fat little Valentine's babies, right? From medieval Europe era on. We think about this weird comic book heaven thing because it's what pictures have taught us to think about. And that's profoundly uninspiring and relatively milk toast, if you ask me. The vision of shalom we get in the scriptures is a world made new. It's an embodied reality where we in resurrected bodies live with God and one another in the real dirt of the earth. And we still do work and we still do rest and we still do play. We still do worship because our life is ordered around gathering around the throne of Christ and worshiping him. It's not like weirdly foreign. It's all that is familiar and good, but made new and right. It's life on earth as it ought to be. And so these are the things as we begin to wrap our mind around the future. It's not just possible futures that may work out in, one of, in, in better or worse ways. It's a promised future that Christ will complete at his return. And he calls us to participate in it even now. But there's another part of it that I think we really need to lean into and recognize. And it's the process by which this future comes to bear upon the earth. Because the process... Even as we pray on earth as it is in heaven, the process by which that reality comes true is a process of death and resurrection. What happens to Jesus happens to us and the earth. The hope that we're given for the future isn't a hope where we avoid suffering. It's not a hope where we are spared from the realities of our vulnerability in a scary world. The hope is that God is so committed to seeing to completion the work he's begun that he's stepped into the reality of our human vulnerability. He's been willing to take it on the chin himself in solidarity with us. Take the full fury of our human tragedy and failure and die beneath its weight to extinguish its power to determine the end of all things. And then to rise above it by a power we know nothing of until we get to know him. And then to begin to live in the world differently and lead us into living in the world that way. So death and resurrection becomes the process by which we begin to experience the future hope that is actually promised for us in Christ. And this is where this gets really important, because if you think about this passage from Luke 12, where Jesus is talking to his disciples about their worries and about all their anxieties, for us, as we think about the future and we're worried about it, we're anxious about real things, at the very bottom of all of that is this existential question, will I be okay? Will my loved ones be okay? And there's a very real sense in which the answer to that question is, no, it's going to hurt. The hope that is yours is not a hope that doesn't hurt. But, yes, you will be okay. See, it's a death and resurrection hope that is ours in Christ. It's not an avoidance of suffering hope. It's not the hope that if you do it right, 
you will, you will effectively protect your kids from harm. You won't. We want to prepare the road for the child so they don't get hurt rather than preparing our child for the road that's going to hurt them because we're parents. We love our kids and we want to wrap them in bubble wrap and send them out into a world that can't hurt them. It won't work. It won't work. You know that because you were a kid and it didn't work for you. The promise, the hope for the future that is ours in Christ is a death and resurrection hope in which what happens to Jesus happens to us. And if you read the story of Jesus, if you become really acquainted with the story of Jesus, it doesn't go well as he gets nearer and nearer to need. It really hurts. He experiences anguish and agony in the garden as he pleads with God for another way. And then he experiences death on the cross for us. And then he says, if anyone's gonna come after me, they have to learn to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. But that's not the end of the story. God isn't done with Jesus at the cross and he's not done with us in those moments of pain and sorrow. And the promise of hope that is ours is a promise that beneath it all, beyond it all, God sticks with us even through suffering and death. He's with us in it and he holds us and he leads us beyond even the bottom of the belly of the grave into a world of goodness that we could not possibly make for ourselves or our loved ones. The pathway is the path of Christ, which is a path of, des of death and resurrection. But the last thing I want us to see is that this promised future with Jesus at the center, this future of shalom, that comes to us through this process of death and resurrection is one that actually calls for our active participation today. This isn't just future pie in the sky stuff. This is not just a religion of afterlife stuff that's a, so heavenly minded, it's of no earthly good. Rather, the way of Jesus is a way of actually allowing God's dream for the world to shape our daydreams for the future. Allowing God's design for our lives and our, our place in the world to be so animated by his love, so animated by his spirit, that we begin to live today as what Leslie Newbegin calls the sign, instrument, and foretaste of that kingdom that is yet to fully come. So how do we participate today? How do we participate today? A couple of thoughts. One, I think the invitation for you and me is to begin to steward our wants and our worries toward the promised future of God. Our wants, our desires, the things that make us get drawn to those opportunities as we think about the future. What do you want? And does it line up with what God wants? And what would it look like for you to open up what you want and say, you know what, God, renew me. Renew my desires. Pull the desires of my heart toward your desires for the world so that I want what you want, so that what I pray for aligns with what you dream up and dream about for a flourishing world. And then steward your worries in the same direction. Jesus talks in this passage about how the lilies of the field and all of the things are so clothed and so beautiful. And he talks about how we're not, he, he invites us to not worry about having what we need or about being cared for. Easier said than done. 
my wife is a therapist who works with a lot of people who suffer from anxiety. And this is one of her go-to passages, and she has this beautiful little illustration. I don't think she made it up, but it's where I learned it, so I, I can only footnote Bonnie. But she talks about anxiety, and I think I've shared this before, in terms of imagine that you're sitting down at the dinner table and your plate is in front of you. And the plate is to be the size of your meal, right? It should fit on the plate. Well, anxiety is like taking a week's worth of groceries and dumping them on the plate and feeling like you have to finish the meal. Way too much for you to do right now. It's way too much for one sitting. But it feels like what you have to do. When we live in the world out of our anxieties and we're worried about the future, we're worried about tomorrow, we're, we fret over all the things that could go wrong, we're connected to all of these sources of information that are always notifying us about everything that is going wrong everywhere. We live every day as if we've got a full week's worth of groceries on our plate. It's overwhelming. It's often paralyzing. Yet that's where we live. But Jesus is reminding us here. He's, actually, he's saying, no, actually, you don't, don't try to eat a week's worth of groceries at your meal. You won't be able, A, to enjoy the meal that you're given, or B, probably finish it in any healthy way. You're going to be here for five hours to try to finish dinner, for that matter, and you do have other things to do, right? When we, when we get stuck on the future and we live today primarily investing our lives in the future as we think about it through our grid of opportunities and threats, we live absent from the present moment and unable to love the person right in front of us because the gift of today can only be received by us if we're not obsessed with what tomorrow will bring. And so to see the future through eyes of faith partly means to just trust God with it and let today be today. And if you miss the next Amazon when it comes along, bummer, but you were going to anyway, probably. And if that diagnosis does come, that phone call comes, the one that's going to upend your life, it's going to come one of these days. And you might strategize and delay it. And there are healthy practices that will probably delay some of those things. Those are good. But you cannot control those things. And if we live in the world primarily trying to fortify ourselves against future threats, what we're going to not do is live in the world as people who love our neighbor. We'll miss, we'll miss today because we're so worried about tomorrow. Jesus says, don't do that. Tomorrow has enough trouble. Let it worry about its own. Today has enough trouble. Be in it. Be in it. Be present today, and that requires trusting God with tomorrow. So friends, I think as we think about our, seeing our future through eyes of faith, the good news for each and every one of us, it sounds weird, but it's that you can actually be free of the anxious toil of building a safe house for yourself because you're actually not going to be okay. The day is coming when you're not. There's nothing you can do about it. But the good news of God is that he will be with you in that day. He is with you today. And the better day that you could never possibly achieve, he has already achieved, secured for you. That is being held for you, guarded for you. It is imperishable, undefiled, and not made by human hands. And it is protected for you by your Father who holds you to himself in Christ 
and has given you a spirit that is the down payment of that world that helps you live today in light of that future. And we desperately need the help of one another and the help of God to actually practice that. And that's what we're going to try to do. Let's pray for God's help now. Our God, we give you thanks for the good news that is in Christ. And we thank you for the incredible love with which you have loved us. This amazing love, how can it be that you would choose to die for us? And thank you for the unbelievable hope of resurrection that dawns on the other side of that love, that is the promise that is secure for us. God, would you liberate us to live today in the gift you give by freeing us from our fear of tomorrow or our obsession over how we might maximize tomorrow? But instead, will you help us to be present now as those who love you and one another in the name of Christ, through whom we pray, amen.